You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. So pleased that you could join me for today's live question and answer time. What we do whenever we can is we get together here on a uh, Thursday afternoon. And what we do is we just spend time answering questions. I respond to your questions the best I can. Certainly don't claim to know everything, but what I do know, I'm happy to share. And uh, I enjoy these times on Thursday afternoons where I can come to you. But uh, last week, we didn't have a session. It was a Christmas Eve. And I enjoyed the time with my family. I hope that you did as well. But here we are on Thursday, the last day of the year 2020. And I believe that God has good things for us awaiting us in the year 2021. I believe that just because God is a good God and we should trust him and believe him for these things. So uh, that's what I really trust and believe. I hope that you will take a look at a video that we put up in the last couple days on our YouTube channel called All Things New. Uh, It's just a little bit over five minutes long, and I hope it'll be just sort of an inspiration to you in the new year. Again, check out that video, All Things New, on our YouTube channel. So what we want to do right now is take a little bit of time and begin with what we call our lead question. After the lead question, I've got a special surprise for you today on our question and answer time. But our lead question today comes to us from Marsha, who asked this over the YouTube comments. And Marsha asked this, will some get more reward in heaven? Here's Marsha's question. I'll read it to you just as she wrote it. She said this, what do you mean by increasing your reward in heaven? Doesn't every believer receive the same reward, eternal life? Now, I can't exactly tell you when it was that I said those words from Marsha, but I don't doubt that I did. I'm sure that there have been times when I talk about increasing your reward in heaven, because I do believe that the Bible does tell us that we can increase our reward in heaven. Uh, But So I think Marsha's question is great. Doesn't everybody get the same reward? Just eternal life. Isn't that good? Isn't that enough for everybody? Actually, I would say that the New Testament has a lot to tell us about reward in heaven. So I'm just going to click through some verses here, um, starting in Matthew and working away through many passages in the New Testament. I'll just summarize them for you. Again, talking about reward in heaven. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. By the way, there's a couple parallel verses in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus refers to great reward. The the phrase Jesus used was, great is your reward in heaven. So Jesus spoke about great reward. Then in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus spoke of somebody receiving no reward for something they had done on earth, specifically an act of generosity. And because they did it with the wrong heart, the wrong motive, they would receive no reward. So great reward, no reward. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaks of a prophet's reward. Uh, In the same verse, he speaks of a righteous man's reward. And then in the next verse, Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus speaks of a reward that can never be lost. So again, those are different aspects of reward there. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 47, 
Jesus speaks of rewarding believers by a measure according to their works. In other words, that people will be rewarded according to their works. And the reference there is to believers. Then again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of reward for those in Christian service. I'll talk about that verse a little bit more in a moment. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks of his own anticipated reward. Then in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke of the potential of someone being cheated out of their reward. Here, he says this, Let no one cheat you out of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now, I do think that Paul probably had in mind some sense of an earthly, temporal reward, but also a heavenly reward. That's most commonly the way that Paul uses that phrase. Colossians chapter 3 also speaks of the assurance and hope of reward, saying to us that you know from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Then in 2 John chapter 1 verse 8, we're told to speak of the hope of reward. It says here, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. And then just one final verse. It's not the only other verse in the New Testament that talks to us about reward. But Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, gives us these words of Jesus. He says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. So here we see that the Bible uses the idea of reward and heavenly reward many times and in many different ways. I want to hone in a little bit more on one particular passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Uh, let me read those six verses to you. Here we go. He says, again, the Apostle Paul writing, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which we has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Here what the Apostle Paul is describing for us is that there's a sense in which some people in heaven will receive a reward, and some people will not or will not receive much reward. They will be saved, as Paul uses that sort of haunting phrase in verse 15, yet so as through fire. Now, Paul understands, and he mentions this in verse 10, that all of this is according to the grace of God. All of this comes to us, yet there is the sense in which God will reward those who have faithfully served him. And that's really Paul's thinking here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So he says, as he says here in verse 10, let each one take heed how he builds on it. There's only one foundation for the church, 
but it does matter how we build. If you're building on a different foundation, then it isn't the church at all. But how you build on the true foundation is very important because, as Paul says in verse 13, each one's work will become clear. God will test the building work of all his fellow workers. And some people build with gold, silver, precious stones, as he says in verse 12. Other people build with unworthy materials like wood, hay, and stubble. But the point is clear in the midst of this. In the age to come, in heaven, our work will be judged and we will receive greater reward or lesser reward based on what we do right here and right now. So to give a just direct answer to Marcia's question, Marcia, there will be greater and lesser reward in heaven. Now, believe me, everybody will be completely pleased and overjoyed that they will at least be there. That is absolutely true. But we can't get away from the many clear verses in the New Testament that tell us that we will, in fact, have a greater or lesser reward in heaven. As it says here in verse 13, the fire will test each one's work. Now, once you notice something, it isn't so much that the amount of the work will be evaluated. What Paul seems to get at here is it's not the amount, but rather it is the quality of it. Verse 13 says, what sort it is. If someone did a lot of the wrong sort of work for God, it will be as if he did nothing. His work will be burned and it will vanish in eternity. D.L. Moody wisely said that converts should be weighed as well as counted. And that has to do with a lot of our work for God. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? That many, many people who believe that they are serving God and they're doing it in an unworthy manner or with unworthy materials, they will come to find in eternity that they have really done nothing for the Lord. Now, some of them will be saved, but with a life that was wasted and they will receive not much of a crown to give unto Jesus. Again, as Paul says in verse 15, he himself will be saved, yet as so through the fire. So, brothers and sisters, our work will be tested. Let me say a few more things here. First of all, verse 13 makes it clear that he says, if anyone's work, the fire that Paul speaks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it does not speak of a fire that purifies the worker. It tests their work or their workmanship. The reason why I bring that up is that Roman Catholics will use this passage to justify or to teach their idea of purgatory. The idea that when we die, we go to a place where we are purified by fire before we go to heaven. I'm here to tell you, this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 has nothing to do with the idea of purgatory, which is really a human invention. I would say that it denies the finished work of Jesus for the believer. So to summarize, let me give you four principles. Number one, there is some sense in which reward in heaven is proportional. The Bible tells us, we read the verses, or at least referred to them, there is great reward. 
and apparently a not so great reward. There is a prophet's reward and a righteous man's reward, which apparently are greater in some way. There are also warnings against failing to gain or losing reward. Here's the principle. Not everyone gets the same reward. That's number one. Number two, the Bible does use the idea of heavenly reward to motivate us. There's nothing strange or wrong in that. Jesus spoke many times about having treasure in heaven. And Jesus said this with the sense that not everyone will have the same treasure in heaven. There are things that we can do now to build or increase our treasure in heaven, especially in regard to our Christian service and to our generosity. And then number three, this is three of four principles. It is hard, maybe even impossible to imagine that heaven will be a competition between those who have lots of reward and those who have little reward. No, I don't think so at all. I think the best way to think about this is that in heaven, everyone's cup is full and it's full to the brim. Our reward is in having a bigger cup, in having a greater capacity in some sense. So in heaven, everybody's cup will be full, but perhaps the idea of reward leads us to think that some people will have a bigger cup. And then fourthly and finally, please remember, in the end, all the glory will go to Jesus. We like the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, where the 24 elders who represent the people of God through all of God's redemptive plan, those 24 elders cast their crowns before he who sits on the throne. I'm sure that in heaven, whatever reward we have, greater or lesser, it will all be surrendered to Jesus and he alone will get the glory in heaven. So Marcia, again, thank you for your question. I'm glad you asked it. And I, I think it's good for us to remember what the Bible teaches us about reward in heaven. Now, right before I started that lead question, I did say that we got a special treat for you on today's question and answer. This would probably be the most special question and answer time we've had yet. I want to bring on to our camera my wife, Ingalil. So Ingalil, please come on on the camera here and uh, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. And you know, we've talked about having you on from time to time yep. and that we've never really got around to it, but I'm glad that we have now. Yep. On the very last day of this crazy year. Here That's I am. right. That's right. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, maybe you can sit in for a little while while I sure, deal with some sure. of these questions. I, think, and I, I love, I, I mean, I hear you every week. That's right. Pretty much every week. Pretty and much. And enjoy, um, enjoy hearing the answers just as much as I enjoy the questions. I think people have great questions for you. They are great questions. Yeah. I'm really uh, impressed yeah. by the high level of questions that yeah. come from our yeah. people. No, but great. while I'm scrolling up and looking now at the first question, mm -hmm. uh, anything significant for you here in this year 2020? Are you glad to be moving into 2021 like everybody seems I, to be? I'm glad just like everybody else is um, to be moving into 2021, getting out of 2020. Um, there's so much that's happened that's unusual. Hmm. And I think that's been um, the hardest. I don't think we realized how unflexible we were and how, uh, how little we like imposed change and how um, how much this year has tested uh, both our faith, what we know, 
what we didn't know, uh, how to deal with the unknown and the unpredictable. And um, I, it was, it, it was great in that sense because it challenged our faith in many ways. And that's doesn't happen as much as it did this year. So I look back and I say, yes, there was a lot of disappointment in things that didn't happen. Um, but to evaluate um, if God truly is sovereign over our lives, um, this wasn't a surprise to him. And I can rest assured in that um, belief that his sovereignty yes. never changes, but it changes me when I believe it. Yes. And it helps me deal with everything that is going on. So That's fantastic. Yeah. I like that. His yeah. sovereignty doesn't change, but it changes me. It changes me when I believe it. That's good. I'm going to use that sometime. Do you mind? Go for it. All right. Great. Okay. First, we've got just a comment from Jane wishing us a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Then we have a question from T who asks, Hi, Pastor David. I hope you can help me with answers to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, I could not reconcile these two verses with the biblical teaching of the Trinity. Thanks for your answer. Okay, I think what he means by this is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 is that famous passage where it talks about a wonderful counselor, everlasting father. And I'm imagining I know what 2 Corinthians here, chapter 3, verse 17 is. Let me turn to that. Sorry, pages on my Bible a little sticky here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Hmm. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Again, I just want to make clear I have that verse. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. And again, it talks about this. Well, uh, T... What I just want you to understand is, first of all, the Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 thing, where it calls Jesus the everlasting Father, I believe that there's a better translation of that. And the better translation would be, and I believe I described this in my commentary on Isaiah chapter 9, I believe the better understanding of that is that he's the Father of eternity. So he's the creator, the source of eternity. And I think that's really a better way to understand. It's not trying to tell us that Jesus is God the Father, because the Trinity teaches us that there's one God in three persons, and that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. However, it does also teach us that the one God is named Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, now the spirit of now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. Hmm. Paul's just telling us that the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Hmm. God the Father is Yahweh, hmm. God the Son is Yahweh, God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. One God hmm. in three persons. Hmm. So that's the best way to understand it in my mind. Yeah. I think that's good. But it's true these things are stretch our minds a little bit. They do. Don't they? It's good. Okay, very good. James gives a greeting. Okay, Lucho says, what's your take with the prophets who said that Trump will be president for Mm. the next four years? Mm. Well, Lucho, I would say this. It looks like they're wrong. Now, there are people who I know, they still believe that even at this late date, that uh, some 
completely unexpected thing is going to happen and that Trump will be inaugurated as the next president. But but I can say that it looks like they're wrong. Mm. And what else can you say? Mm. If somebody says that a word is from the Lord and they're wrong, then they're wrong. Mm. Now, mm. I don't believe that under the new covenant, we should treat false prophets in the same way that they were treated under the old covenant. You, what I mean, would you make a distinction between a false prophet and just a wrong prophet? Uh, maybe. Okay. Maybe I would. I mean, there, there's getting some distinctions there. Sure. But if somebody prophesies something and it doesn't come to pass, I don't think that we should kill them. No. As was commanded. We're, good, we're good agreed point. on that? Good point. Okay, good. Good. I'm glad we're clear on that. Yeah. But it should lead us to the recognition that that person is less trustworthy than we regarded them before, for certain. You, you, you can't ignore if somebody makes a public prophecy and it's wrong. Hmm. You, you just have to agree with it. Hmm. Or, excuse me, agree that they were wrong, were wrong. In, in their statement. And you need to take that into regard regarding anything they would say in the future. So I guess that's as plainly as I would put it. Do you think it. it makes a difference if that so-called prophet um, either apologizes or admits that they were wrong or says that I was mistaken, I thought I heard... I wanted to hear this, and therefore I said it. Do you think that makes a difference? It does make a difference. Now, it doesn't make them any less wrong. No, right. But it does make them much more godly and much more humble. Right. It shows that they're not proud and that they're real about okay. such things. Okay. So that's how I would regard it. Okay, so let me go on to the next one. Um, Andrea says, greetings from Andrea, finally home from Israel, back in Panama. I'm recommending Enduring Word to Spanish and Arabic speakers wherever I meet them. God bless you and your family. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that wonderful? Oh, She's blessing her family Thank as well. You. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Thank Andrea. You. That's wonderful, Appreciate wonderful that. to hear. Yes. And again, um, one of the big things that we take a great joy in here at Enduring Word is that we put a lot into the translation work. Mm -hmm. For our Spanish commentary, it is under a significant proofreading right now. It, it's a big commentary. It's going to take a long time to get through it, mm -hmm. but it, it is a significant proofreading. Mm -hmm. um, and then with other commentaries, we're working on the Old Testament Arabic now and in Chinese. It, it's a lot of work and we put a lot into it. Yep. So thank yep. you for that, yep. Andrea. Um, Aluatore says, hello, Pastor David. Happy New Year. My question is, how do we enter God's rest practically? Wow. Okay, I'll give a couple ideas. And if anything I'll, comes I'll to your think, mind... I'll think of some. Okay, okay uh, I would say there's two ways for us to do it. Now, the first way I'm going to respond to your question is not so much practical, it's more spiritual, but I believe that the spiritual uh, engages with the practical, if I can say that, mm -hmm. is we put our trust in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he did for us, to be our right standing before God, and we rest in that. Hmm. If your own works are the basis for your right standing with God, then you can never be at rest. Right. You've never done enough. You've never done good enough. Right. And so that is a spiritual thing that takes place in the practical. And then the second thing is, and I'm going to say this kind of hoping that my wife doesn't burst out laughing, you need to take a real day off regularly. I agree. 
that is a very practical and the reason why I say I hope she doesn't start laughing mm -hmm. it's maybe more in sorrow than yeah, in that yeah. is I'm terrible at that. Yeah. Uh, I tend to be kind of too obsessed on work and accomplishment and all the rest. And I, I hope to be getting a little bit better as the years go on, but it's very inconsistent. <laughs> it is. Uh, but I do know that this is practically one of the best ways that we can say, um, I'm resting in you, Lord. Mm. I don't have to do everything. Mm. Mm. I can trust you to do and to provide instead of having the mentality that I have to do everything. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that's yeah. a very practical way. Yeah. And I think that... Um, for a lot of us, we need to look at our Savior and our Lord as our Good Shepherd. And the Psalm 23 uh, describes what He does for us. And um, I think if we put ourselves completely in His care and His, um, um, just His work in, in our lives, we will let him be our good shepherd. Mm. We will let him lead us beside still waters. We will let him make us lay down in green pastures. We will let him restore our soul. And so I think, like, as you and as, as an example, um, you need to allow God to be your good shepherd mm. that draws you in to his rest um, you willingly go into his rest and you willingly receive that rest in his presence. I think that is a key part is we seek him for him because he becomes our rest. He becomes what we need whenever we have a greater need than we ourselves can, mm. can meet. So um, I, would, I would encourage anybody here this year, this coming year, we were we had imposed rest. <laughs> we had yes. imposed couch time. We had imposed, you know, quarantine inactivity. Inactivity, um, and once we start getting busier again, we're going to need to continually see him um, in that light of being our good shepherd and him to lead us, him to guide us, him to uh, prepare for us what we need. And uh, I wish that everybody will have a. Uh, Psalm 23 year mm. where they not only see his goodness, experience his goodness, but come to that very first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want mm. for anything other than him. Mm. So I'm going to leave you to the rest of the questions. Okay. A very happy new year to everybody and a happy 2021 and let's move into it learning all that we need to learn and maybe Maybe this is the year that we get to go home to be with the Lord. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be amazing. I'd vote for that. 2021. Fantastic. Right. Come quickly, Lord right. Jesus. God bless you. God bless thank you, dear. Thank All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thank you again to my wife, Inga Lil, who is making her way out right now. And I'll continue on with the rest of our question and answer time. So let me continue on. T again asks, what is God's attitude towards Satan? Does God hate Satan? See, I think this is a very interesting question. And I would say that, yes, God hates Satan and hates the work that Satan does. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? 
And if we're supposed to love our enemies, then why doesn't God love his enemy? I would describe it like this, that the relationship that angelic beings have with God, and I believe that Satan was and still is an angelic being. He's a fallen angelic being. But the relationship that angelic beings have with God and the relationship that human beings have with God is just different. That's all there is to it. It's a different relationship. See, here's the difference. We only know and can say that human beings are made in the image of God. We cannot say that with any kind of confidence, with any kind of assurance about any other being in the universe. I believe that human beings have a relationship with God that angelic beings do not. And because there's just a difference in how those beings relate to each other, that God is under no obligation, so to speak, to love Satan, and neither are we. And that God does, in that sense, hate Satan and his work. So I, I would just, again, emphasize the fact that there's a difference between angelic beings and human beings. All right, let me continue on here. Um, Jesse says, yeah, it, it seems strange that a couch potato for Jesus would get the same reward as Paul. Again, I don't believe that is. I do believe, as we discussed in the very beginning, there is a difference in reward. Um, Andrea says, are you recommending the series, the app, The Chosen? What are your feelings about it? I'm enjoying it. Uh, Andrea, I have to uh, confess here. Uh, I have not yet seen it. Now, that is a confession because it has been well recommended to me by many people. So I can't give you a first-hand assessment of uh, the chosen, of the uh, the app, the, the video series, but I can give you a second-hand assessment. And the second-hand assessment is people that I uh, know and trust, and that they, they consider it to be very good. So I don't blame you at all for enjoying it. I, I really should watch that. Um, obviously, I think it would be interesting. So that, that's about all I can say to you about it. I have not personally seen it, but it comes to me highly recommended uh, from many other people. Continuing on, um, a witness says, Hi, David. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to your family. Will the Antichrist be a Roman or does he come from the Middle East? Uh, a witness, I would say this, that in my opinion, Again, especially when you talk about things having to do with eschatology or biblical prophecy, you'll get a lot of different opinions from a lot of different people. But in my opinion, there isn't enough biblical evidence to give a definite answer to your question. There is indication, again, in my opinion, that the Antichrist will uh, be connected with a revived Roman Empire, whatever exactly that means. Uh, you know, people have thought that the revived Roman Empire is expressed in different ways. Uh, some people think it is whatever the dominant world power is at the time, which could be said to be America, the United States of America. Other people have stressed more the geographic continuity with the old Roman Empire and stressed that it could be the European Union. Uh, whatever, the, the, the Antichrist comes out of or has some political connection with that. 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that he has an ethnic connection with that. So I, I just don't think that there's enough evidence biblically to say uh, with certainty uh, he's a Roman, uh, he's not a Roman, what, whatever it is. He's, he comes from the Middle East. I, I just don't think that there's enough evidence. There's maybe some hints here and there, but if I'm looking for more than just a hint, I, I don't know if I can really see it. Okay, continuing on here, Jay Lee says, um, yes, okay, uh, Jay Lee's quoting that verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the idea of building on this foundation. That's a fantastic passage there, um, that each one's work will be clearly and definitely judged. Let me look down for the next question, hoping that I'm not skipping over a question and uh, if I am skipping over a question, all I can ask is, uh, please don't take it personally. Um, looking over some of the comments here, looking down for questions. Okay, here we go. Um, Eugene says, hello, Pastor David. Uh, Happy New Year here from Kenya. Now, I wanted to know if our prayers reach heaven or some of them are being blocked from reaching heaven. Eugene First of all, Happy New Year to you in Kenyan. Uh, it's wonderful. I don't think that as I record this that it is quite the new year yet, but you're definitely ahead of us here in California. Um, Eugene, we speak kind of symbolically of our prayers not reaching heaven. I, I think that that is sort of a figurative way of speaking. God hears every word we say. Matter of fact, one of the more sobering verses of the New Testament is where Jesus said that we will be held to account for every word that we speak. So it isn't that we speak and God doesn't hear what we say. Rather, the Bible uses the terminology that God hears our prayer when he answers favorably, when he responds to our prayer. So when the psalmist, and this phrasing is used many times in the Psalms, uh, the, the Lord, hear my prayer. What he's actually asking for is that God would answer his prayer. God hears every word we speak and we will be held account to it. So it isn't that our um, prayers don't reach heaven, but if we do not pray in faith, if we do not pray from real trust in Jesus Christ and a trust in his righteousness, if we do not pray coming in the name of Jesus, then there is no promise to God that he will answer our prayers, uh, hear our prayers in, in that sense of hearing prayer. So again, I, I hope I'm clarifying to this. Our prayers reach heaven in the sense that God hears every word that we speak, but God is not obligated to answer prayers that are not made in faith, that are not made based in faith in Jesus Christ and in his work as a mediator, that are not prayed with a surrendered heart, that are not prayed according to his will and his promises. There are definitely things that will mean that prayer is not answered. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Eugene. Um, Happy New Year's. Okay. And people speaking about this idea of answered prayer. 
continuing to go down. All right, it looks like we are done with the questions as we see them. I don't see any new questions that have come in here. I'll give it a few more moments and if any more questions, I think it's a uh, shorter and less active I think no doubt people are busy here on this holiday, this last day here of 2020. I do want to say, um, well, let me go to this next question that's just come up. Uh, Andrea is asking or adding this question because apparently I skipped over it. Who were the saints that were raised during Jesus's resurrection in Matthew chapter 27, verse 52? Is there any other information regarding this? Okay. Andrea, thank you for relaying that question because it is possible for me to skip over a question just because of the speed of the scrolling. And by the way, if there are any other uh, questions that I've skipped over, don't be shy about repeating them for me. Anyway, the question is, what about those people who were raised from the dead in Matthew chapter 27, verse 52? I, I can say this, simply speaking, that... Uh, this is one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. It says that when Jesus died, not when he rose from the dead, that when Jesus died, that there were some apparently Old Testament, well, I wouldn't say Old Testament because there's no, I would regard them as being more recently dead people. It just says that there were saints who were raised from the dead and who at least for some time walked in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 27, verse 52. Let me turn to it here. Again, I'm going to have to use a more well-worn Bible next time. 27, verse 52 says, Okay, finally. It says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Listen, I, I have to tell you, that is the only indication we have of this event. The only indication. We're not told anything more about this than this. And to be honest, it doesn't give us much to go on other than something remarkable and something, uh, you know, totally out of the ordinary happened. We don't know specifically who these people were. We don't know how long they had been dead. I would guess that they were saints, those who died in the Lord, who had been just recently dead. But I have nothing to go on other than a supposition with that. We're not told who they are. We're not told how long they were dead. We're not told how long they walked the earth. We aren't told much about this and the only reason it seems to be that Matthew included it, I, I believe it actually happened, of course, but I believe that Matthew included this to simply remind us um, or, or to express to us that something absolutely history-changing happened when Jesus died on the cross. This happens right after Matthew's explanation that the veil in the temple tore in two spontaneously from top to bottom as if it were from heaven to earth when Jesus died and gave up his life on the cross. So I really think that that's the idea here. And we're just not told much specifically about this. Okay, um, Micah asks, is Adam and Eve uh, a metaphor? 
Micah, I would say, huh, well, okay, I was going to say, no, they are not a metaphor, but I was going to say, well, yes, they are a metaphor in this sense. They are a metaphor, but they are not only a metaphor. Were Adam and Eve real people? Yes. That's just simply how the Bible presents them. They are not presented to us as symbolic people. However, they do have a representative purpose. That idea is very clear. Their representative purpose is clear in the scriptures. So they are a picture of something greater, but that doesn't take away from the absolutely essential fact that they were real people. I believe that there are certain tripwires, a, a wire that if you break that, something bad happens. There are certain tripwires regarding the Christian faith, and one of them is simply this, that if you abandon belief in a literal Adam and Eve, that's trouble. I, I believe that that shows that you've gone to an interpretive place that is far too fast and loose with the Scriptures. Now, Adam and Eve are, in a sense, something greater than just their own individual lives. What they did speaks both literally and metaphorically across the generations. So I would say, yes, you could say that they are metaphor, but not only metaphorical at all. I, I hope I've answered that clearly enough. Okay, SP, thank you for repeating your question, uh, because again, uh, sometimes the questions just get by me here in the thing. It says here, uh, how to debate with someone who says that if you do not speak in tongues, you do not have the Holy Spirit, and how to debate with somebody who says that his own congregation is the only one? Well, SP, I, I would simply say this, that number one, the Bible speaks very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 that not all speak with tongues. Paul does it in the section where he's asking metaphorical questions. Do all, or metaphorical, excuse me, rhetorical questions. Excuse that little slip up there. Paul's asking rhetorical questions, and a rhetorical question is a question where it is understood that the answer is no. So do all work miracles? No. Do all have this other gift? No. And then he specifically mentions, do all speak with tongues? No. The idea that the gift of tongues is the evidence of somebody being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think is very misguided and has done a lot of damage. Now, if somebody wants to say it is an evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, okay, we could talk about that. But it is not the evidence. Listen carefully. The evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And if somebody's life is absent of the fruit of the Spirit or shows opposite to the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't matter how much they claim to speak in tongues all day long. There's something wrong there. There's something very wrong. So I hope that's clear to you here, that uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, just read through 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Look for the verses where Paul says, do all speak in tongues? And the answer to that is no. Now, that's just one passage that comes to mind immediately. But I would say that the Apostle Paul never presents the spiritual gifts, and surely 
The gift of tongues is one of the manifestations of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Nowhere does Paul present it as if all the gifts of the Spirit or any one particular gift of the Spirit was given to everybody. The fruit of the Spirit for everybody, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts of the Spirit are distributed by the Holy Spirit as He, meaning He, the Holy Spirit, wills. It's according to His choice. So He distributes, not us. Secondly, you asked, what about people who says that his own congregation is the only one? SB, all I would say is that Jesus said that he had sheep that were of another fold. And, and when you take a look at what Jesus says about that in John, I, I can't remember if it's in John 14, 15, or 16, but you'll find it in those chapters of John. When Jesus said that he has sheep of another fold, I think there's a lot to that statement, but one of the things that's about that is that the followers of Jesus cannot be comprehended in just one congregation. If somebody believes that you have to be a part of their denomination to be saved or to be right with God, that is a danger signal. Jesus said that he had sheep that were not of this fold, so to speak. There is more than one congregation in the family of God. And so we shouldn't be excluding denominations based on minor or lesser doctrinal things. Rather, we should receive them as being um, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay, let me go on to a few other ones. You're very welcome, Micah. Jesse, you're welcome to that. And regarding the fruit of the Spirit, um, SP also says that he does not have resources to methodically study the Word of God. Uh, you can support. Well, here, I'm happy to give you this support, SP. Um, I have a verse by verse commentary on the entire Bible that many people find helpful, many people find useful. I think that this can be a great assistance to you. You can find it at EnduringWord.com. That's the website that has my complete commentary throughout the entire Bible. So I hope that you'll look it up. And I hope that I can wish a very happy new year um, as we come into the year 2021. So I'm very pleased that you could join me today. Especially pleased that my wife Ingalil could be on with us during that segment. And again, I do want to recommend to you the Bible resources that you can find at uh, EnduringWord.com. And look on my YouTube channel for this video, All Things New. We just released it a couple days ago. And it's a five-minute video that I think will inspire you for the coming year. Hey, thank you to everybody who prays for the work of Enduring Word and who supports the work of Enduring Word. Uh, it is a tremendous blessing, and it is not forgotten. It is very gratefully received. So God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful, blessed new year. And I'm planning on being back here next Thursday, as I say sometimes, God willing, and if we leave, live, for our next uh, question and answer time on a Thursday afternoon. God bless you, and thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. 
For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.